0: Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I'm calling in from the snowy, frigid slopes of Park City, Utah, where this year's Sundance Film Festival is currently unfolding. Throughout the festival, I will be rallying the best critics in town to debate and discuss each day's new premieres. So follow along on the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter for roundtable discussions, interviews, dispatches and more. Hello and welcome to the first Sundance Film Festival podcast of 2023. Mm -hmm. This feels like a big occasion because I haven't been to Sundance in two years. We've been attending virtually and we've done some virtual coverage the last couple years. But it feels really exciting and I I have to say a bit um, exhausting to be back in Park City Mm -hmm. in person. For this year's festival, it is way, way, way colder than I was prepared for. (laughs) It's a
1: particularly cold year. It is very cold.
0: It's so cold. And uh, I had forgotten like what the altitude does to like your lungs and Mm -hmm. your brain. But I'm super excited to be back here doing daily podcasts on the ground. And for the very first one, I have two of my favorite podcast guests. (laughs) I'm I'm, uh, going to ask them to introduce themselves, Abby.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Abby Sun, and I am the Director of Artist Programs at the International Documentary Association, IDA. This is a new job title since the last time I was on this podcast. That's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I'm still also a freelance film writer and programmer. And I'm Alyssa Wilkinson. I am the film
2: critic at Vox.com.
0: Uh, so, Abby and Alyssa, it is very late It uh, is uh, <laughs> on opening night mm-hmm. of Sundance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, We have seen a few movies, Uh, only a few movies have opened so far. And for me, it's been interesting. I think opening nights of festivals are always tricky. I can't remember the last time (laughs) I had a good opening night at a (laughs) festival. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I got to say, the two movies I saw today, neither of them really blew me away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe, Abby, we should start with the one that both of us saw together.
1: I would say, too, just to maybe contextualize this first it has been very rare so at sundance opening night is called day one and it's a very rare day one film that i actually find myself impressed by um and exactly. all of the years that i've been attending sundance virtually and in person i only remember um summer of Soul. Yeah. Which was mm-hmm. 2021, really um, blowing me away and being a film that stuck with me. I honestly can't even remember a lot of other Day One titles, mm-hmm. um, so this is not perhaps out of the norm for yeah. Sundance. It's something that has intrigued me for a while, but yeah, just to get into
0: the, God, the heart. What of a the shame matter. that Summer yeah. of Soul uh, was virtual because um, I don't, I didn't yeah. even remember it as a as an opening night film, mm-hmm. even though I, I watched it virtually and and really enjoyed it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It is playing at this festival just so people can have the Sundance experience with Mm -hmm. it. Right. But I think I saw it like three or four times in 2021 once it started coming into theaters. But that's, yes, you're totally right. And I, yeah, I, I don't know why this happens either. Although I think there's, this is not Unique to Sundance. Um.
1: Yeah. So there's a variety. I mean, I can speculate a little bit, but the two films that I have seen are The Longest Goodbye, which is the day one selection out of the World Cinema Documentary Competition and then Kim's Video. Uh, which is co-directed by David Redman and Ashley Sabin, two independent documentary filmmakers who have been working on this project for a very long time, and this is the Day One selection out of the what's considered um, the more hybrid or experimental competition next although the truly experimental films at Sundance are reserved for New Frontier Frontier. and there are no day one films from New Frontier this year which was a surprise addition back into the program because earlier this fall Sundance had actually announced that they were folding New Frontier right so that's actually a very pleasant surprise for those of us listening and those of us chatting right now who are more into the experimental film side Mm -hmm. of things
0: and and uh To my understanding, there are no virtual reality... that's correct Our interactive yeah. experiences which used to be a big portion of new frontier right
1: yeah so the old um walgreens in park city was turned into the new frontier lounge um but that doesn't exist so there's nothing there used to be um last year there was a very ambitious biophysical bridge quote-unquote that was planned that didn't happen when sundance moved to be virtual only mm-hmm. um i will say i as somebody who also um curates immersive projects and yeah. writes on them really, really sad because um, the next, uh, um, uh, uh, the sorry, the New Frontier curator and also senior programmer at Sundance, Shari Freelo, is really like um, somebody that's really pushed forward. Mm-hmm. AR, VR, immersive works. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Last year, I ended up writing a bunch about the VR works that were in the Virtual
0: space yeah. in like this spaceship, um, and that was very impressive. The way they transitioned yeah. that program to an yeah. fully the online. Platform place. One in Webby, by the way, for interactive design. <laughs> well, yeah. and it was it was a really good
2: experience for me, a person who uh, has a lot of physical trouble with VR to mm. like actually sit down and do that. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm glad that New Frontier is here in whatever sort of iteration it is yeah um, yeah but yeah
0: and uh the films playing in new frontier are some of my most anticipated titles here actually but we'll get to that mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know at the end we'll we'll save some time to go over what we're looking forward to in the coming days uh, but let's get into the day one films a little bit yeah so abby do you want to just tell us a little bit about the longest goodbye So The Longest Goodbye is a film by the
1: Israeli filmmaker, Ido Mizrahi, and it has a fascinating premise, Um, and it takes as its jumping off point um, Obama's uh, stipulation to NASA to land astronauts on Mars, which is, as one can imagine, a vastly... Um immense logistical project, but this film actually kind of skirts all of the technological presentation. Um, there's actually another day one film, Apollo 11, which of course focuses a lot on the technology and the kind of um, scientific prowess of the US. One could even consider it a very propagandist film, um, but this one is attempting a much more critical look at the emotional and psychological toll of um, what is being proposed as a three-year project. It would take half a year to send astronauts to travel the distance to Mars, a proposed 18-month period of living on the surface of Mars and studying it, and then six months back. Um and there is it turns out a co- international cohort of astronauts who are already being trained uh, to prepare for this mission. Um and the film starts out by centering the work of one, but maybe two. This this leads a little bit into some of my critiques of the film later. <laughs> um, their work on. Um, how they evaluate uh, the mental state of the astronauts that are selected. Well, you mean one or two psychologists, right? Yeah, who yeah, work yeah, for yeah. NASA, and right. there's a whole cohort. But, I mean, the reason I'm kind of hedging around all of this is because um, the film, if I were to s- speculate as to the structural organization of it, is that it's thematic. As opposed to chronological or um, whatever other organizing logic
0: we might have. Or I might call it idiosyncratic. Yes. Not even thematic.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, so it touches on things like there's a, I would say almost the entire first act of the film is focused on uh, an inquiry or perhaps an obsession into what happens with women astronauts and their families, their spouses and right. their children when they're being abandoned. Mm-hmm. But there's never any male astronauts that are um, um, asked or speak on the record or at all. So it also, to me, it came off as... Um, playing into quite um, retrograde stereotypes about the role of women in a nuclear family unit. It then moves into um, kind of the psychological toll of maybe being in a very enclosed space with a small group of peers and some... Perhaps conflicts that can arise out of that. This is actually a rather abbreviated part of the film. I wish I was a little bit intrigued by this. Yeah. and then it ends in kind of a strange twist on how NASA and other the European Space Agency, in particular, are using um, what appear to be actually quite rudimentary at this point <laughs> AI robots to serve Which are as not emotional even a companion. level. I'm sorry, I'm I'm i rea- I cannot describe this robot whose name is. Simon, Simon, Simon with, a, with C. a C. Yes.
0: Um. And was um, the most disturbing kind of line drawing face. It's like <laughs> and a really long lag in answering yeah, questions. Yeah. And yes. a
1: voice that is like eerily like Hal. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm just... I'm trying to, like, maybe point out some positives first. <laughs> so I will say... So there's these sessions that the psychologist in the beginning has with um one of the, um like, astronaut and training cohort members in particular. But we don't really see or hear the contents of that. We really just hear the mm-hmm. psychologist kind of summarizing how he analyzes things. Um, And then there's actually all of these archival portions that get woven in, there's one astronaut, um, a woman who walked this International Space Station mm-hmm. three times, and it uses archival footage um, of her, um appears to be nightly calls with her husband and her son. Um, but it's also, again, we don't really see or encounter, like get to experience a lot of that um, playing out in real time. A lot of it is overlaid by her now adult son um, talking about how difficult it was emotionally not to have his mother, Um, and there's some very bad, but it's supposed to be bad, um, flute-playing duets between the two of them, Um, (laughs) and then there's a lot of um, other just kind of random archival That, to me, I was actually quite disturbed watching it on a big screen. There appears to be this kind of, like, anti-noise digitized filter that gets applied to all of it, um, whether it's film footage or video, and it really creates this kind of eerie, washed-out look. I I assume it was done to kind of make all of these different video formats appear uniform for an audience, but it's done in a rather amateurish way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that on the most basic level, the film is very haphazardly organized. I mean, it just it just t- took me out of any um, you know thematic insights that the film was providing. The it's fact that very circular, yeah, and it's it just jumps around. Um, it it has a lot of kind of stockish footage. Uh, you know, th- you know there are these kinds of classic documentary scenes or images that feel like filler, like if. Um, there's a voiceover of someone and they will just randomly be like a profile shot of them staring into the distance, even though that kind of solemn framed shot doesn't necessarily seem appropriate in that moment. There's a scene where uh, some scientists are talking about hibernation as a possible means of um, having humans survive. Oh, right. And then the animal dioramas. Yeah. And they, and they like cut to a picture of a bear. A stuffed then, bear. A stuffed... Oh, I I, I didn't even... I thought it was just like a bear. And then a close-up of the scientist's face and then a close-up of the bear's face. I mean, it's just so unimaginative, especially for a film about, you know, traveling in space. Mm -hmm. So on one level, that was just my problem with the film. On the other level... This is, Abby, as you pointed out, such a potentially rich subject uh, yeah, on many right. different levels, you know, ethically, culturally, technologically, all of that. And I feel like it, its insights remained on such a basic level, like mm-hmm. it kept reiterating the absolute obvious, which all of us already know, do not need a film or a scientist to tell us, yes. which is that it's hard to be alone in space for a <laughs> I long time. I've
1: experienced this over the last two years. Yeah,
0: yes.
1: it's yes. hard to be
0: alone. It's hard to be away from your family, and I feel like these very simple insights are just repeated again and again with. You know, sometimes unnecessary, unnecessary tangents and illustrations like this tangent about how a psychologist, one of the NASA psychologists experience helping miners in Chile who were trapped in a collapsed mine for like two months. Mm-hmm. How it made him realize, I believe verbatim the quote is, the use of families is critical to ensure the stability of individuals in space, yes. you know. So first of all, that language was very interesting for me, this very Uh, efficiency-oriented language when you, you know, when thinking about families and individuals. Mm -hmm. But also, again, all of these examples continually drive home a pretty simple point. A point
2: that's been made a lot in things about space, too. I had the very strange experience of seeing this movie on a screener, Um, like maybe a week ago. And just prior to that, I had been watching the Apple TV Plus show For All Mankind. Oh, that's a great show. And I'm in the middle of the third season and I'm not going to spoil it, but it's an alternate alternate history show. And Mm -hmm. so they're in the mid 90s and they're going to Mars. And so they have been for... Two and a half seasons, as far as I've seen, basically the whole show is about this point, but in a way that's very like affecting and moving, makes you kind of think about the characters and their relationships. And so I flicked on this, and I was so excited. I was like, oh, great, I'm going to get like the nonfiction uh-huh. perspective. And then um, by the end of it, I the movie actually kind of ended, and I thought... Oh, did I like fall asleep or something halfway through? Because I couldn't figure out what I had just watched or what I was supposed to be taking away from it. And so I'm actually quite relieved to have bumped into people who had the same experience with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, while watching it, I kept thinking, I've seen High Life. I know. Right. I We've know what it's interstellar like. For, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've seen Interstellar. I know what it's like for humans to be stuck in space for a long time. Yeah. I know what it does to their psyche. Claire Denis, Chris Nolan, they all already showed me. Which is, you know, I mean, I think a documentary had has the potential of like maybe telling us what fiction is missing in this case. Yeah. But I don't think this film does that. No. And the most interesting part of this film to me is they kind of gesture
2: at, without really getting into, the culture of um, hiding your emotions Yeah, uh, in NASA and how that has its roots in a time where they weren't, Um, talking about the psychological reality. And even though now they are, there's still this movement towards, I can't talk to a robot AI psychologist because somebody might hear it and decide I can't go on the next mission. That's... Fascinating. I really want to think about that and what that means for the kinds of s- explorations we do and what right. kind of the implications are. And of course, you can't fault a movie for not being the movie you wanted to see. But that seemed so interesting to me that like when we got to the Chilean miners, I was just like, I don't I don't know what movie yeah, this is.
1: Because the, the main difference, too, between the Chilean miners, which... Are also introduced in a very strange way because the psychologist that we're talking about is the first person who's introduced. He's the one in the first act. He completely disappears for act two and three and pops back in for this interlude and then never appears on screen again. And it's not like particularly connected, but. The film's true ending actually is the two female astronauts—one the currently in training and the one who has already walked the International Space Station in Katie uh, Coleman—and is retired. Yeah, Um, both emphatically state that despite all of the difficulties with their family, how it's affected their partners, how it might have affected them, they do not regret a single thing, and they would do anything to go back to space again. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So like this, like why? And I, I, <laughs> yeah. I thought, okay, they're going to tell us why. Is there something, you know, there's a psychology thing that when you're in space that long, you know, you get so used to it. Is it there's, it's hinted that Katie Coleman, you know, had this like pressure to do more. And I thought maybe they'd get into that. Like maybe astronauts just feel this, you know, they have this limited time out like away from planet Earth, you probably feel like the weight of the world on your shoulders when you're in that mm. position. But yeah, that isn't explored. And uh, I just want to touch upon something Abby brought up too about this unspoken, slightly retrograde subtext of the focus being on two women astronauts in the context of this whole conversation about the importance of the family structure and familial connection. But gender never being really acknowledged, I mean, it's never really made
1: clear that,
0: like, what Mm -hmm. their roles are and how they're necessarily different from the roles of, like, male astronauts in families. And also, you know, more broadly speaking, just... The examples shown are quite traditional families, you know, are like traditional families or or couples that are aspiring for very traditional family structures. So, I was kind of interested in that too. I mean, are they choosing astronauts who have, for instance, the current cohort
1: of astronaut trainees is actually very diverse racially, but everybody in the
0: film is white. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. right, Mm -hmm. yeah, and and you know, I think when you have a psychological framework that's so reliant on having a strong traditional family structure, then who does it include and who does it exclude and what values is it necessarily reinforcing? These are all things that just come up in the course of the film, but it just keeps reiterating these very obvious messages.
1: I will say, having had the experience of served on um, the um, editorial committee for POV, which is... um, US, public media's longest running documentary strand. So, this project is um, a lot of the funding comes from ITVS, um, which also provides uh, broadcast licensing and financing for documentaries in the independent lens strand. And one thing that I did hear, um, because PBS station managers are also a part of EdCom, mm-hmm. one thing that I know that they value. Are actually films that have a little, a lot more repetitiveness than those who mm. would go into the theater to watch, mm-hmm. because they're assuming that viewers, if it's broadcast on TV,
0: might join in in the middle. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Well, I don't know if it's worth it to flog this dead horse any longer. <laughs> I think this was, yeah, this was definitely an underwhelming first watch. um Maybe let's talk about one movie that Alyssa you just saw, I believe, the Pod Generation. I did. Yes. Yeah. Um, which I was
2: quite excited for because um, Sophie Barth's movie Cold Souls is one of those movies that I just think about a lot. I don't even, I watched it so long ago that I'm not even sure what my opinion of the movie would be. Um, But that's the one where if your soul is burdening you too much, you can undergo a procedure that removes it and puts it in storage. So you can go through your life without the burden of your soul. And Paul Giamatti plays himself. It's a
1: delightful film. Um, Very strange. It sounds like it's actually a little bit related to the emotional stuntedness and hiding things away of longest goodbye.
2: So this movie, and so that was, I think, a 2009 movie. She's made some other things in the middle. This one is um, also kind of a near future. Dystopia is too strong of a word for it, but it kind of has the same vibe as like a her movie Mm. in terms of production (laughs) design we kind of get a sense at some point that it's set near the end of the 21st century but you wouldn't necessarily know that at the beginning Um, and there are many things that have happened in this world one of the big ones being that technology has um got gotten to the point where all of nature is something that humans are only ever experiencing through like technological mediation. So like one thing that they do uh, when they need like a break from life um, is like sit at these little things that kind of look like bars and have um, plants growing in like little greenhouses. And then you sit there with like a mask on your face and you breathe in the oxygen and it's like a treat that you do because otherwise you wouldn't have direct access to trees and things like that. Yeah. So the main thing is these pods. Um which kind of pop up in different places, but the, the sort of central one in the film is um, is that they've developed a way for you to not carry a baby in the womb.
0: I just want to interrupt to say that for the longest time, I just thought this movie was a documentary about podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> the generation of podcasters. I kept,
2: anyway. I kept calling it Pod People, which is, is a mystery science theater episode um but anyhow um yeah. no they're like they look like eggs or like something that apple uh-huh. would make except that they're kind of wombs that serve sort of like surrogates i guess mm-hmm. but they're they um you kind of get on the list and if you get in you pay all this money and this company um will like create and incubate your your baby for you and you can move the pot around with you and we and as the oh, movies okay. kind of um unfolding we sort of understand more about it and I really love a film that builds a world in mm-hmm. that way so that was really uh, fun to watch but you know the the kind of uh gist of it is something that's designed for me to be really interested in it because it's something that I think can talk about a lot which is um you know what happens if we commodify like human experiences to the point where all human experiences are things we're gonna have to pay for mm-hmm. um they're all gonna be like done through there's a moment where um Someone says, oh, our government stopped funding education a long time ago, so we're so lucky that these companies actually pay for it. So there's mm-hmm. like kind of all these implications in the background of the film. Alyssa, can you have a baby without a pod You in this world? can. You can have a natural baby. But the pods have been developed, or at least the company tells people this, because um, women... Or you know, people who don't want to give up their careers uh, in order to Mm. just stay and sort of go through that process, and so
0: so it is kind of um, like an allegory for like um, like it's like a surrogate, but it's like actually a detachable womb or something. So it's not exploiting another uh, person necessarily, exactly. Yeah,
1: and then also like tied in with freezing your eggs. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So it's sort of all these things that. I think one thing I really appreciate about this movie, as I did with cold souls, I have to say is Mm -hmm. that often movies like this are fully dystopian. It's like, we know from the start that this is just bad and we should all think it's bad. And um, this is a little more like, well, look like this, there are legitimate reasons that we talk about today that this technology would develop in this direction. And there are, upsides to it. There are good Mm. things about it. Um, you know, there's a point where they're trying to, um, they're trying to decide like how the baby will be conceived. Like what will the genetic Mm. material be? And they're like, actually, we don't, we don't need male, involvement at all unless you want to have a boy because of chromosomes like if you mm. like we can just clone one of your stem cells and unite it with an egg and and you'll have a baby so there's like kind of all these interesting ethical questions mm-hmm. but it's not a movie that's really about the ethical questions it's about this couple um Amelia Clark and um uh you and they He's a botanist. <laughs> he he grows plants, and he doesn't really like all this tech stuff, and she is a successful something. We don't totally know what she does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the painting of their relationship is really interesting. Um, you know, I think in the end, maybe I wasn't quite sure where I was supposed to land, but I think that's good sometimes with a movie like this. It's definitely the kind of film that I think uh, is funny and gentle and quite lovely to look at. Great, Mm. great, interesting, um, ideas about what will costume or what costume. Yeah. What will we be wearing at the end of the 21st century? (laughs) Like what are the small things that will be different in our lives, Mm. uh, without jumping into like full futurism or like we'll have flying cars or no, the New York city subway still works the same way (laughs) in the future. Um, You know, people still have cats. Things you can like have
0: detachable wombs. Yes. But the trains will not run on time. Yes. And they exactly. will still smell like shit.
2: It will still <laughs> and like some people, you know, are going to be so concerned about clean air that they're gonna be carrying around little um plant pods on their backs that mm. they have masks and they just wear those around and it's an it's an interesting world that she's created she also said um in remarks before the film started um that she they was sort of based on a series of strange dreams she had when pregnant uh with her own daughter Hmm. which was happening right when cold souls was being made so her daughter's 13 now but those dreams are kind of incorporated so it's got a little bit of a flavor of um just the strangeness of pregnancy and Mm -hmm. of, um, maybe lose feelings of bodily autonomy. And then like in this world, maybe you can have them, but maybe you can't. And Mm -hmm. all of that kind of floats to the surface.
0: Um, I'm just curious, like, this is a very kind of tricky area in terms of like feminism and how we think of, uh, the relationship to the body and this idea that women should be able to kind of outsource pregnancy, especially, out of choice, yep. like a career-based choice versus the decision to like bear a child. Yes. And this does seem like a very kind of interesting take on that because yeah. often, like I was saying earlier, those questions become naughty because, mm-hmm. uh, naughty as in yes. <laughs> not like knotted, because outsourcing often in today's world involves yes. uh, using a surrogate mother, which, you know, some people believe is kind of Yes. systemically a bad thing yeah, yeah. It, there's and a lot of and then there's also the argument that. that
1: like the one of the reasons why having children um holds women behind in career progression is not just the act of childbirth and yes. pregnancy itself but also all of the caretaking afterwards yes. and that rich families have always been able to hire nannies and exactly. i'm curious like well, so why? this yeah. this
2: is interesting because it's shifted to you you kind of understand that this is an option only available to wealthy mm-hmm. people. It, you know, there's it costs many thousands of dollars to put a down payment to do this. Um, and that is not different, right, from how it kind of would work today. You know, if you're wealthy, your experience of raising children is just vastly different right. from anyone who's middle class or certainly working class. Um, and that is sort of not, this is not like an extensive exploration of like reproductive kind of technologies, mm. um, but it's always kind of there in the background and the extent to which the characters seem kind of unaware of it is in itself like interesting about the world that they live in. Um, the other piece of that is that now you, you start to get the sense, I'm not going to give anything away, mm. but you start to get the sense that um, corporations are exploiting this uh, desire to bear children this way. for their own purposes and there's a couple little things in it that happen mm-hmm. that are never totally explained but you realize that like something bad is probably going Wait, on is this here. related
1: so i have a couple of friends that work in tech and a lot of those companies offer for instance like egg freezing mm-hmm. services for free and it's been kind of analyzed as trying to get the most out of like work efficiency of young women yep. as opposed to like actually being a service right yes well, there's also there's an
2: element in this which goes nowhere, but that uh, in the in the film. But there's an element where you come to realize that babies grown this way don't dream.
0: Whoa! Whoa. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that's all we know. Uh. But when you start to think about that, it starts to have interesting implications. Like, okay.
1: Automaton human. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, if yeah.
2: you are handing over, you know, human reproduction to a corporation that's going to grow babies in pods, well, the a hundred years on from there, you can think about what kind of strange hmm. things could happen there. Right. Yeah. And if they have your genetic material are is there like a factory somewhere? Uh, none of that's in the movie, but it kind of makes you start it to raises think about those questions. You know, I've always um, appreciated films that uh, make us skeptical about technological advances, especially because they're always presented to us as unmitigatedly good. Um, right. Or if someone waltzes out and says we've solved the problem of disease, like you should probably be worried, because right. you've seen that movie, um, and I think <laughs> there's like elements of that, in and here. also because
0: we rarely access technology without it being heavily corporatized. Exactly. I think that's the that's like the greater almost threat. Um, yes. Well, this sounds like this is a pretty fascinating and thought-provoking and, like, good day-one movie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, not,
2: it's not, you know, it's not going to be my best film of the yeah. festival by any stretch, but it's slow and it's gentle and it's funny, um, and it also, like, gets a little darker the longer you think about it, and I appreciate that in a film.
0: You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast.
1: There is another film that has this trajectory, you know, which is a day one film. That has which trajectory exactly? You know, it starts out kind of funny and then then gets gets very dark. dark. (laughs) Um, And um, well, we already mentioned it. Mm -hmm. So it's no surprise. But this is Kim's video. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And for anybody who has been a cinephile in the last couple of decades, um, you will know the Kim's Video chain of VHS rental shops run by a Mr. Kim, um, who is oftentimes mysterious and many times uh, gets quite demystified, actually, in this film. Yeah. I, I won't try to reveal too much um, because this is a um, heist caper film of sorts. Um, if you uh, are familiar with David Redman and Ashley Sabin's um filmography, or if you just Google David Redman's name and you see that he is a professor in criminology, actually, (laughs) you might actually get a sense of where something like this is heading. Um but it does center around um this kind of legendary space mm-hmm. that had at its peak 55, 56 thousand different titles, many of them undistributed, um, that were sent out by Mr. Kim Scouts to different film festivals. And part of the legend also of Kim's video is that many of the video clerks that worked at the different outposts have become filmmakers that have been especially feted, actually, by Sundance. So this selection is also, in a sense, Sundance celebrating its own history. We see people like um, Todd Phillips and Jim Jarmusch and indie darlings um, Alex Vos Perry and Robert Green, Green um, appear. Uh, Some longer, some shorter cameos um, in the film, and there's a moment
0: uh, where a former clerk recalls how when Kim's video, the last one, was shut down, the Cohen brothers had six hundred dollars in unpaid fines. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, it it really, for me, who had always heard about Kim's video and kind of knew, you know, about its very epochal almost presence in New York indie film culture. But I I actually didn't know all these historical details. So it was quite fun to hear the story of what seemed like it's almost accidental founding in the film. He talks about how young man Kim started just putting out bootleg uh, VHS tapes in his dry cleaning store and people were renting those so much that he started opening these stores, opened a chain. And like you were saying, Abby, he sent... His staff to film festivals to scout undistributed films. I mean, whoa. Like, the owner of a video, video yeah. store doing that, um, it's crazy. And yeah. then how, like, this pretty scrappy, um, often illicit enterprise, because so much was bootleg stuff um, that, you know, he would, like, get DVDs or VHS tapes from embassies and and then just rip them off and, and make a copy, uh, was, you know, the a bastion yeah. for, like, not yeah. just these, you know, indie darlings, but major, like, sort yeah. of respected filmmakers,
1: yeah. too. Yeah, so the film itself kind of speeds through this intro. This is a very lighthearted hearted mode. Um, and, um, again, for anyone who's been following. So um, it might not come as a surprise to you that it's very difficult to um, financially support uh, an indie VHS (laughs) rental
0: store these days. Um, Yeah, and just so the premise of the film uh, in brief is that David Redmond is basically kind of chasing the story of what what happened to Kim's video. And what actually happened was that when it got shut down... um, he, there was this one store, the most successful one, I think, called Mondo Kim's that had 55,000 titles. And Mr. Kim put out a call for proposals and um, basically offered to donate the entire collection to any school or institution or anyone who made a you know bid. As long as they had the 3,000 square feet of space to house the collection. And they provided um, like access to all Kim's video members. Um, And so there were a few conditions like that. And apparently many institutions made proposals, according to Mr. Kim and other folks, NYU being one of them. But he went with... The municipality of Salemi in Sicily, this little town that was trying to, I guess, revamp uh, itself it was as a, a tourism initiative, exactly, which is actually what Sundance Film Festival is as well. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, and and they kind of made this proposal and made this like grand promise of this beautiful castle-like building where uh, the collection would be held. There would be rooms set aside for any visiting Kim's Video members. All the entire collection would be digitized and made available online, projected like nonstop on a loop, like the entire collection, all of these grand promises. And so they were all packed up and shipped to Italy, which genuinely is like, I I mean, as far as like finding a premise for this kind of weirdo heist movie goes, this is like, yeah, this is a great premise. here's
1: where I'm going to start like critiquing the film a little bit because, um... You know, the story is so rich that David Redman is actually, and this might not also be a surprise, the first filmmaker who's pursued this story. Um, and the version that I've been previously most interested in is the one that was done by Jennifer Vendetti, who mm-hmm. even staged elaborate. Um, theater festivals she's most well known now as a casting director Um, she has cast um, uncut gems and Mm -hmm. euphoria and actually nathan fielder's uh, the rehearsal Mm. Um, but she also is a documentary film director she made a film called billy the kid this was supposed to be her second feature project um so unfortunately that is actually never mentioned there is um an uh, who I think Jim drummers I can't remember now had also pursued this as a project. He is um in the film, and um so so this is where it starts to get quite interesting for me because um David redmond goes he um the the door is unlocked but he hops the fence like there's you know he he's just like wandering around it we could term it like urban exploration at this point he gets himself involved in some town politics he uh the collection um but this was already known beforehand too was um abandoned it was not climate controlled right. you know uh, he was a kim's video member could not check out a video emboils um, himself in some local politics.
0: Um, Involving mafia. Yeah, and, like, yeah. We're, we're not gonna,
1: yeah. Maybe a mayor dig- who
0: was involved with Berlusconi's Boonga Boonga parties. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and the entire structure of this is, he's like really narrating a lot of it. Yeah. And so intercut with the footage that David is shooting himself are uh, clips from a lot of the movies that he's referencing. So the voiceover is like both explaining this really wild setup for a caper film, as well as detailing his own cinephilia development into a filmmaker um, and what he's gleaning and learning in real life from his obsession with film. He connects it with a childhood, um, you know, video stories and all of that. Um, And it really, I mean, it's quite interesting because there is this sense that he's like trying to break into this exclusive club. When he started this project, he was not a filmmaker that was considered like as much festival success as a lot of the people that he's encountered I mean, and this is like would be true of like ninety nine point nine percent of filmmakers because like the the personalities in the film are very well established, right? Um, but also to me, it's interesting because David and Ashley's own work it has been um, very experimental up until this point, um, like chasing, uh, going up against a lot of different conventional things. And this is actually on the surface a very conventional film. Um, it is leaves nothing up to interpretation. Yeah, I mean, whatsoever. I think
0: the use of the clips from, you know, his his uh childhood favorites or just films that were formative for him is is one of the most grating parts of the film because um the examples are just they don't see there doesn't and, seem to be any strong personal connection. And it's very
1: simple the narrative. Exactly. What we have described is like a lot more detailed than are actually in the film. Um, And also, um, some of the examples that he uses, so for me, this is like not the first time that like stealing, and I I mean, we can look to like works like Banksy who destroys his own work, for instance, like what value, what is he stealing? But then, Actually, I was thinking a lot about the um, performance artist, life artist, maybe just common bank robber Joe Gibbons. Um, while watching this film, he was a Princeton art professor and started doing more and more outrageous things, yeah. and then eventually ended up robbing—actually, robbing banks. Was it the personality he was playing, or was he actually a bank robber? He was sentenced to jail for it. Um, and yeah. yeah,
0: and to to clarify, it's this is relevant because. Eventually, kind of a spoiler alert, um, David in the film eventually decides that he's going to, like, steal the movies from this whole in Salami. And he concocts a very um, meta and elaborate plan
1: to steal the movie, taking inspiration. Maybe we won't reveal the mechanisms of it. Um, That is a quite fun sequence in the film. But he takes inspiration from the movie Argo.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and... I think, so there is one way in which the references that he employs are just very simple and feel kind of forced. And that ties into my reservation with the film that it truly just screams gimmick. And it doesn't mm-hmm. have to, even though the the premise is all very quirky and it's, it's you know, very much a, like Abby was saying, a very lighthearted, self-referential film. But there's enough there for something very sincere to be at the heart of, you know... Um, a kind of goofy enterprise. There is this sincere love of the movies. There is the story of an institution that was beloved and fell apart. There is this quite, um, I mean, intriguing story of Italian like city politics that led to both the acquisition and abandonment of this um, collection. All of that, I think, you know, he, he, the first time he travels to Italy, it really feels like he's doing a man on the street sketch, you know, like Billy on the street or something. He's, He's there without a translator. It actually feels
1: quite disrespectful.
0: I mean, he's just going up to people, Mm -hmm. yelling at them in English, and then, you know, he just returns from Italy not having found anything. And this could actually have been something investigative without necessarily having to become somber or, like, change the tone of the film. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there could have been a genuine kind of curiosity here. And instead, it feels like it's all kind of building up to this gimmicky end in which there's a heist. And the heist feels a little bit almost like pointless ultimately um, i mean how it influences the the uh, ultimate place and destiny of this I collection would say is also interesting the end is public what mm-hmm. actually happens so
1: if you actually want to preserve the mystery for yourself don't google kim's video yeah. because the ending happened last year in real life mm-hmm. so i mean this is it is real it, yeah. It's not a fiction film. And to it's be cool clear. that yeah. he was
0: like active in the filmmakers were active in making that happen and they kind of their film became an intervention into what happened to this collection. Mm-hmm. But the entire film feels like just a very kind of slight performance constructed around that event. Mm-hmm. And I just wish that there was actually a sense of risk, a sense of serendipity, a sense of like curiosity that came through in his travels and his explorations as shown in the film. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I, I, I know what happened at Mm -hmm. the end. So, um, (laughs) I, I actually tried to watch this on a screener and the audio didn't work, so I didn't end up watching it. But, um, but yeah, that, that gimmick thing is such a frustration when you feel like, uh, for me, anyhow, when it feels like the filmmaker is making themselves like pointlessly the center of the film, um, when they never needed to be on any level. So yeah.
1: I'm sure I'll see but this it. is definitely aimed at a much different audience yes. than the director's previous films. Um Fremantle, a new global production company, boarded um, last month. Um you know for a general audience i can see this like some people who don't know what kim's video is i can see this being a very fun watch um but for me it's like because it's supposed to be an ode to cinema like to me it has to work for cinephiliacs Mm. as well Um, and i'm not quite sure it does it seems to me like in terms of you know, the people here who are in this conversation, as people who have dedicated our lives to this, and as somebody who I know, like, the filmmakers have dedicated their lives to this as well. It just feels very simple.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is very crowd-pleasing and simple. And um, it's, I mean, I think this material lends itself to something crowd-pleasing. And, you know, I, I that is a strength of the movie. But I just wish it weren't so simple because it's almost, it feels like diluting this, the complexity and the legacy of the story. Um, But anyway, so that was Kim's video. And I think uh, those are three of the kind of more buzzy opening night films. There were a couple others that maybe we'll catch up to in the coming days and get into. Uh, It is quite late and I don't want to keep our lovely guests any longer in my tiny little Uh, corner of Park City. So before we sign off, though, I did want to ask you both what you're looking forward to, uh, you know, what's really, you know, this year's Sundance is a little different for listeners who don't know. It's both online and in person. And, um, Not all the films, but most of the films are available online two days after their in-person premiere. So a lot of people are, are, you know, maybe following from um, different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you have any... Any personal kind of things you... Alice, I know you, you usually watch a lot in advance. So yeah. Things you've already seen that you're excited about mm-hmm. or things that you're really dying to see. Um, I Well, I'll say as far as dying to see, it is um, Nicole
2: Hall of Center's new movie, which has the world's greatest premise. The movie is called You Hurt My yes. Feelings. <laughs> the premise is that basically a writer overhears her, um, her partner saying that he doesn't like her writing, <laughs> which is, mm-hmm. uh, so divorced. <laughs> but that actually leads me into like, why did I come here? And it's because I want to see that movie in a room with other people. It, that was really important. And that's true for a bunch of the movies.
0: And you will go to the press screening, eh? To see it in a room of other writers. I,
2: <laughs> I, yeah, I, I very well, might I mean, I, I suspect a lot of people, no matter what room I'm in, are going to have had that experience. But yeah, I mean, that was a real, you know, put it in my eyeballs kind of thing. Um, That said, I have seen a couple of movies and I would just say the ones that have stuck out to me um, that are like worth looking for, I think, are, um, there's a drama called, I believe it's in US drama called um, The Starling Girl, Mm -hmm. um, which hit me in a very particular spot because it's about, a seventeen-year-old girl, played by Eliza Scanlon, who um, people will recognize from mm-hmm. *Little Women* and is um, it *Sharp Objects*? Um, I think that's the one. Um, she, where she, yeah. Anyhow, um, mm-hmm. uh, she's a seventeen-year-old girl in a fundamentalist Christian community in Kentucky who kind of goes through this experience that's. Um, you know, hard enough on its own to watch, but I think uh, all of the vocabulary and references feel extremely correct to me um, as a person who grew up basically in exactly the same mm. experience. So that I really liked. And then um, Luke Lorenson has a doc called A Still Small Voice, uh, which is the first of the films that I saw that's about people in a um, program at... Um, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Um, sort of a cohort who are uh becoming um uh sort of non-sectarian spiritual um support mm. for patients and their families that is really remarkable. I, I've really been thinking about it a bunch. So those are two that I would totally, if you like have the ability to watch from home, um, would look up.
1: Cool. Yeah. I'm very excited for the last one, too, because Luke is returning to Sundance after a very polished um, debut, yes. Midnight Family. Yes. Yes. Um, and um, yeah, so for me, maybe I'll start with the docs. So I'm um, very... I Actually, I'm still wrestling with my own feelings about the second half of this film, but it just has this explosive, very provocative premise. Um, I'm still thinking about Mila which is yes. in a kind of... It's also in the name of the director. Um, very personal film, um, and she's investigating kind of the family, communal, personal rate of having grown up essentially in a racist social experiment during the apartheid regime of South Africa Mm -hmm. um, when um, uh, she grew up in a township where they didn't know that apartheid was happening. Mm. I'm being a little bit vague about this because there are some particulars that I really explored with some incredible conversations. Um, she's asked, posing questions that I think are really interesting. Um, but the film does have a shift in the second half um, that um, I was not expecting at all, given the way in the first half. Um, and I'm just dying to talk to people about okay. it. Well, maybe we'll talk about it here in a few days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also very intrigued by, uh, so I haven't seen this one, but I'm very intrigued by a Syrian documentary, Five Seasons of a Revolution. Um, it seems by all accounts to be by kind of this maverick um, director, um, edited by Diana El-Girudi, who's is an amazing filmmaker on her own, mm. produced by some powerhouse teams and um I think we've all seen many Syrian um, revolution films, but this one really does appear to be a standout. I'm very interested in this. And then on the um, fiction side, I'm not going to mention, there are some like hot titles that everybody is interested in, like Cat Person. I too am very interested (laughs) and intrigued by Cat Person. Um, But um, I just want to, I'm like making room in my schedule for an early morning screening of Chloe Dumont's debut feature Fair Play, Mm -hmm. Um, which uh, the premise is it's um, uh, a couple, a male female couple, and they work at the same um, finance firm, I believe, and the uh, woman gets promoted, um, and um, it's a thriller. And um, Chloe has made some really interesting short documentaries, more mid-length, I would say, about relationships that have unique compromises slash maybe fall apart in interesting ways. So I can't wait to see how she, she turns this into the fictional landscape.
0: Cool. I'll keep it really short and I'll uh, I'm sure we'll talk about these films more in the coming days, but I really do want to shout out the three features in the new frontier category, oh, yes. which are by uh, you know, filmmakers that I've I'm already a big fan of. So Deborah Stratman has a new feature, which is kind of, you know, big news. Uh it's called Last Things. Mm-hmm. Um Mary Helena Clark has a feature called A Common Sequence. And Fox Maxi, who we just talked about on, the, on last week's Film Comment podcast for regular listeners, um, when we were talking about uh, Thousand Sun Cinema's uh, indigenous cinema CDs, uh, which features some shorts of foxes, she um, has a feature called Gush that I'm going to be seeing in a Is couple this of days. Is this her first feature? I
1: believe so. Yeah. Yeah, I
0: believe so. She's kind
1: of exploded on the scene the last couple of years. I would say, like, it's, you know, Deborah Stratman and Mary Helena Clark are really working in the, like, kind of materialist um, tradition of experimental film. And Fox is an incredibly exciting new voice because it's, like, TikTok language. Exactly.
0: Very hybrid, kinetic, pop culture savvy. And I love, I mean, these are... Three directors who kind of represent almost three generations of experimental uh, American mm, film: Deborah, Mary, Mary Fox. and Fox, yeah, and, and women. Yeah, exactly. Too, yeah. And so I think I'm pretty. I'm excited to kind of watch the three of them and kind of see what you know, picture they, they unfold. Um, So I'll just leave it at that. We have many more podcasts to come. We'll dig into everything. Thank you so much, both of you. Yeah. Thank you for helping me kick off this year's podcast. Thank you. I'll see you back here soon, but for now you are free. You may go to bed. We must all
2: go drink a lot of
1: water.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we'll see each other in screening rooms again the next morning. Uh, Early morning. (laughs) Yep.